So we're doing a series called uh, Heroes of the Faith. We're looking through Hebrews 11, and we're looking at some of the, the people who are mentioned in Hebrews 11 and how we can, we can follow their example of faith. So um, in keeping with that, I'm not speaking about anybody from Hebrews 11 tonight, just to take a little excursion. I'm going to be looking at another unlikely hero of the faith. I'm struggling here. Maybe I should go with a handheld. Up. There we go. How's that? How's that? Better? Yeah? Good? Cool. Okay, cool. Sounds like we're echoing in my head. So I'm speaking tonight on an unlikely hero of the faith. It's a lady we find in one of the parables of Jesus. Um, I've entitled the sermon, Faith Like a Dripping Tap. You might recognize that from, from Proverbs. Um, this, this is a parable we're going to look at in, in Luke 17. It's where Jesus tells a story about a woman who represents faith in prayer, persistent faith in prayer. It's also a story about God's response to faith. Most of all, it's about a question that Jesus asks right at the end of the parable. Finally, we're going to look at the context of the parable. What was Jesus getting at? And I'm going to take you then from Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. If you'll go there, it's the parable of the persistent widow. This is how it goes. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to look at it. And he told them, this is Jesus speaking, a parable to the effect that they were always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who came again, kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither, neither fear God nor respect man, yet will I give this, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is one of the most difficult parables to understand because it kind of lands in the middle of nowhere. We're going to look at the context in which it's found in a little, little while, but, but he tells the story of a widow, and right at the end he asks the question, when the, the Son of Man, Jesus, returns, Will he find faith on the earth? So we're going to look at a couple of people in the story, and we're going to see what we can tease out. The first is, first person we can look at is the judge. Usually when we think of judges, we think of our Western legal system where you go to court, and you've got lawyers, and you, you file papers, and eventually there's a trial, and, and the judge makes a decision. That's not what was happening there at all. In... In, um, in the Middle East, you could go to somebody who was appointed as a judge and you could say, this is, this is my case, without much formality at all. And there'd be witnesses potentially and the other person would have an opportunity to state their case. But you could, you could go to a person and demand justice. And that's what this lady did. This widow went to this, this unrighteous judge and said, I demand justice against my adversary. So it... Most of the commentators say, most likely, most likely what happened here is that she had her property taken away from her. 
and she was demanding its return. The judge is both unrighteous and corrupt. He deals with a complaint from the widow not because it is just to do so, because he knows that if he doesn't, she's going to wear him down. The, the, the scripture actually says beat him down. <laughs> she's going to physically assault him until he can't take it anymore. And, and he says, all right, I'm going to give her justice. Um, the Jewish New Testament commentary says um, that he refers to her as a nudnik, which is a Yiddish word. It, it means a nuisance, somebody who's just a bothersome person. Uh, in, in Zulu, I think we'd say, you know, this is, this is just a nonsense. This is somebody who's bugging the daylights out of me. Her cause must have been an obvious one. Why do I say that? Because if her cause was not obviously a just one, he could have said, I refuse you judgment. I've considered the facts, and, and your cause is not just. But he couldn't do that. It appears from the story that if he did that, his, his own reputation would be harmed. So it appears from the facts that, that he decided, I'm going to give her justice. I'm actually going to do the right thing for her. Not because he's a just man, but because to do otherwise would have been harmful to his own reputation. So that's the judge. The next character is the widow. Now, the widow is, is a recurring theme, or, or how we treat widows is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. There are many scriptures in the Old Testament, especially, about how widows are singled out by God for special care. And the reason for that is a widow, especially a widow without sons, was in an incredibly vulnerable situation. They had no means of looking after themselves. And, and actually, because generally only men went to, to stand before judges, she'd have kind of been a non-starter before she even started. And it would appear from the context that she didn't have sons either, because otherwise the son would have been bringing the action on her behalf. So this is a woman who was completely alone in the world, and she needed justice. Jesus is using a trope. That's a, a term that, that Zoe introduced me to. It's a, it's a fam familiar metaphor or symbol. You could also say a stereotype. And the stereotype is not a positive one. In, 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 the, in the Middle Eastern context, uh, a widow who was persistent and, 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 and demanding um, that she have her way would have been a negative stereotype. Yeah? This, if, if you were in the shoes or the sandals of the people hearing this parable, you'd have heard, oh, this is the one who's going to get set up to take a fall because it's a negative stereotype. This is the nagging woman. This is the dripping tap of Proverbs. This is, this is the one who is about to get her comeuppance. But no, Jesus characteristically takes that socially vulnerable person, the person who would usually be on the butt end of the joke, and says, actually, no, this is an example of what it looks like to be faithful and persistent in prayer. Everything in the kingdom is upside down and inside out, everything. Jesus takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And this is a great example of, of, of inverting something that, that the hearers would have been expecting um, to be set up for, for, for mocking and ridicule and saying, no, actually, this is an example of what we should be like. Thirdly, the, the parable is about God. 
so you'll remember at the, at the beginning of the parable, Jesus says, this is given as an example for how they, uh, they should pray and not lose hope. And he says, it's like an angel upon me. <laughs> he says, uh, it's gone, lost it. He says that, that if, if an unrighteous judge gives justice to, to a woman who just persists in prayer, how much more will God not hear his saints and answer them speedily? So it's a, it's a how much more. It's in, in law, we call it an a fortiori judge, uh, argument. If, if it's true in these circumstances, how much more? So you remember Jesus, he quite likes this, um, this technique, this a fortiori argument. He says, if your earthly fathers who are evil, not morally corrupt, but, but if you compare them to the goodness of God, they're just nowhere. If your earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more? Will your heavenly Father, who is good, give you the Holy Spirit? So it's a, it's a familiar argument. It's something that we see in the Scriptures. God is using, or Jesus is saying, this woman who was, who was persistent in, in petitioning an unjust judge to get justice, how much more if we, his saints, are persistent in coming to a righteous and just God, will he not answer us speedily and give us justice. That, that is the whole point of the parable. But it's, it's not the whole story. See, there's, there's something about um, a widow pestering an unrighteous judge that doesn't really feel like faith. Like, wh- why? Why would that be the picture? What is that about? Well, I'm hoping that a a little clip that we're about to show from 1983, so forgive the fuzziness, can tell us part of the story. Eight time now. At 19, at 19. Now, when I say elite sportsman, you automatically think of a 61-year-old potato farmer wearing gumboots, don't you? Sometimes you have events that sort of uh, tickle a nation's funny bone or something grabs their attention. And with Cliff Young, it sort of, it appealed to us on so many different levels. And he used to run in gumboots. He was the worst dressed sports person we've ever had. These days, of course, you know, Nike would have been there getting very special slick gumboots. Cliff Young was, as his name suggested, young at heart. He embodied the never-say-die attitude many aspire to, but few achieve. What the interesting thing about Cliff Young is, is that he wanted to do it. And it was remarkable what he did. I mean, he didn't cheat, he actually did it. Oh, it's been a pretty tough run. The hills all the way, to here anyway. And day after day, Cliffy Young, the Cliff Young shuffle, and the whole nation fell in love with him. Incredibly, at age 61, Cliff became the oldest marathon winner, and he took two days off the previous Sydney to Melbourne race record. Do you think that you're going to make it all the way? Oh, yeah. For sure. I'm going to run all night tonight, and I hope to finish tomorrow. Tomorrow night, sometime. And he streeted the field. He just ripped them wide open. Kept going to Melbourne. If they hadn't stopped him, he would have finished in Perth. 
Cliff was awarded the first prize of $10,000. He promptly gave two grand to each of the five other runners and kept nothing for himself. An impressive and generous man, that Cliff. Cliff, would you do it again? Would you do it again? Oh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Just, just to summarize, because it was difficult to hear all of that. In 1983, at the beginning of the uh, Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon race, it's 875 kilometers. 875 kilometers. This oak arrived in wheelies, in, in gumboots, and an overall next to these ultra athletes and started running. And, and I, I, you can imagine their shock. And he ran really slowly, like really slowly. So that the, the ultra athletes ran ahead of him. And, and when uh, they, I think they ran for 16 hours and then slept for eight hours, when, when he got to 16 hours, he carried on running through the night. And the next day, the other guys got up and they ran and they ran past him and he carried on running. And that night when they stopped and slept, he carried on running and he ran for five days. Five days without stopping and he took two days, two days off the record. Two days off the record. He didn't know there was a prize. He was surprised that there was a $10,000 cash prize and he felt bad because the five guys who came after him all broke the previous record. So he gave them each <laughs> he gave them each $2,000 and went home with nothing. That's a guy who looks to me like persistence in prayer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he didn't have Nikes. It doesn't matter that, that he had what's called the, the young, Cliff Young Shuffle that looked absolutely nothing like the, the ultra-athletes. He had persistence and consistency, and he changed the world of ultra-running forever. Forever. Nobody had thought about running like this before. So there's something, when I heard that story, a mate of mine told, told me about it this week, and I thought, what? How is this guy? That, can you imagine how that rocked the world of ultra running? Cliff Young. He went on, uh, he went on to run a couple of other races and, and eventually bowed out. But, but what an amazing guy. And he reminded me a little bit of the, of the lady who wouldn't give up in the parable. So what's the context of the parable? What is Jesus getting at? Jesus usually to told parables to answer a question that somebody had asked him or to make sense of a statement that he just made. Parables are usually very short, simple stories with a profound moral message, usually. There's a lesson in them. This parable that I've just told, and that's, that's epitomized in my view by, by Clifford Young, is, is at the tail end of this piece of text in Luke 17, from verse 22. I'm going to read the whole thing and we're going to extract one or two points from it. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they, say, they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. And then concludes with the parable. So you remember when we read the parable, it concluded with the words, But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the reason that question is asked is because sandwiched between this text that I've just read, which is what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and gathers his faithful, there's some debates about that, but let's go with that for the present, and gathers his faithful, there's the parable, and then there's this question, when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Immediately before the parable, he says, in response to their question, well, where is this going to happen? He says, where? Not when, hey? Where? How will we know? His disciples are being practical. How will we know? What will we see? He says, where the corpses, where the corpse of the carcasses, there the vultures will gather. Well, that can mean two, two things. The first thing is, you know if you've traveled anywhere in, in, in a game reserve or you've seen National Geographic on TV, you can tell where a corpse is, or a carcass, because the vultures circle. So you can see from a distance, even though you can't see what's happening, you can see the signs. So some commentators say, well, that's, that's obviously what it means, and I think that that's right. I think it'll become evident. Secondly, when Abraham cut the covenant with God, it's called cutting a covenant because he cut a whole lot of animals in half and he walked between them, you remember? When he cut the Abrahamic covenant, Vultures came and tried to steal the carcasses away, and he beat them off with a stick. So, so we can extract from that where God is doing something significant, when God is fulfilling his covenant promises, when God is, is engaging with humanity in a way that is profound and significant for all ages, there will be those that they will come and try to take away the things that represent that covenant. And, and vultures are, are depicted throughout the Bible as, as unclean creatures, like agents of darkness, if you will, representative of the evil one. So, so certainly, there are going to be those who are going to try to t snatch away the very evidence of what God is doing. And he asks this question, when he returns, will he find faith that looks like the faith of this persistent widow? Every age of the church has believed that it's living in the end times. 
in, if you compare it to Matthew 24, you'll see wars and rumors of wars. Every age has had them. If you lived in the Hundred Years' War in Europe, which lasted about 100 years, you'd have thought that you were living in the end times. If you lived in, in, if you were one of the soldiers in the trenches of the First World War, you'd have believed that you, you were living in the end times because of the horror that you were seeing. Tonight, if you were in Syria as a Christian, I think there would be no doubt in your mind that you're living in the end times. Just the utter sheer horror of it. We've got, we've got viruses popping up that are wiping out thousands. The coronavirus, how they could name it after a beer just makes my heart sore, but there it is. Um, we've got We've got volcanoes, we've got all kinds of signs. Um, there, Israel has been in her, in her physical place for the first time in many centuries. Many say that that's a sign. The Bible says that these are the beginning of birth pains. I believe that, that God set it up that way for a reason, that every age would be ready for his return. So that we wouldn't grow slack. But it's very easy to grow slack because we survive. But what does it look like to be persistent in prayer? So when I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, it's quite, it's quite difficult to be persistent in prayer when you pray for stuff and it doesn't happen. It's difficult to be persistent in prayer when actually a lot of life goes wrong, like that guy that, that Drew spoke to this morning. But then I thought about this. I know some of your stories. I've been to our groups. I've spoken to some of you one-on-one. -on -one, and, and some of your stories are, are just staggering, what you've survived to get to this point, to be here on a Sunday night listening to me. Some of you have overcome the most unbelievable odds to be here. Some of you... Have, have struggled through depression and anxiety, through physical trauma, through crime, through deprivation, through, through bosses who are evil, to be here. My dad hung himself. He told me he would. And, and when I read his suicide note, he said, nobody has any use for a useless old man like me, and he was so wrong. Because all of us here tonight have survived stuff that, that could have been the end of us. I nearly got taken out in car accidents twice in a minute last week. <laughs> it was just crazy. I missed two accidents. God has a purpose for every one of us, every single one of us. You have not survived to this moment, this time in history, this age, with signs and wonders and every indication of his imminent return by accident. Not one of us is here by accident. Not one of us has, has found ourselves persistent in prayer, in faith, in believing, and hanging on, sometimes with our fingernails, to the promises of God, to have him like an unrighteous God, like an unrighteous judge say, well, just because you're bothering me, I'm going to give you justice. No. We serve a God who loves us and who's infinitely kind to us. And even when we don't understand it, His goodness sustains us. So, so my encouragement to us tonight is don't lose hope. 
Hope is that golden thread that holds us when it's hard, when it's difficult to be persistent in prayer, when it's difficult to be faithful. You know that text that says, when, I return, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? The word that, that, is, that is translated faith can also mean faithful. Will he find those who've been faithful? And I pray that that's each of us tonight. We all stumble. We all fall. Every one of us. We all struggle. We all have stuff that we wish we don't have. And yet we're here. Serving and worshiping God. And I want to commend you for that because you could be anywhere. You could. There's so many options. But you're here. So as we get into this 2020 year, with all the promises and opportunities and challenges that lie ahead, I want to pray for us that this would not be a year that we would look back on and say, if only. That this would be a year where we've grabbed hold of, of the hem of Jesus' garment and said, the thing that I have, the issue I have, you can heal. That, that, that we would hang on to God and say, I cannot, but you can. And that there would be no regret. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, empty hands. You are a righteous and kind God, not like the unjust judge who, who just listened because he wanted to get rid of this nagging woman. But you hear the widow. You see her pain. You hear the one who has just struggled through life and, and weathered every storm and stumbled towards the light, towards you. You hear us in our doubt and our pain and our struggle and our joy and our hope and our community. You hear us. Tonight, God, we set our hearts and our minds upon you. We say, we will follow you. Yeah, we will. We will seek you. We will pursue you. Because you seek and pursue us. And your kindness is enough. Father, won't you be with us in this week and this year as we set our hearts and minds towards you, Lord? May we be found in your ways. May we be found in your steps. May we be found, Lord, ever more in your presence. Hear us. Hold us. Keep us. In your name and in your will. Amen. Cool.